You're listening to the Nonprofit Problem Solver Podcast brought to you by KevKayat.com. Kev helps nonprofit leaders deliver more impact faster and easier so they can be mission accomplished in 40 hours a week or less. For more information, visit KevKayat.com because good causes deserve better results. Now, here is the host of Nonprofit Problem Solver, Kev Kayat. Hey, Kev Kayat here. Welcome to Nonprofit Problem Solver. Thanks for tuning in. Just to be clear, you are actually the Nonprofit Problem Solver. My job is to extract from our guests the practical, tactical expertise that you can put straight into action. This is a recording of a live Zoom call, and you can join these calls usually on a Wednesday at 11 a.m. Eastern, 8 a.m. Pacific. You can find out all the details and register at nonprofitproblemsolver.com. Today I'm joined by Ariel Glassman, who specializes in helping nonprofits with their technology and also with their fundraising efforts. That's the topic we're covering today, collaborative fundraising. You heard that right. Rather than competing for donors, imagine nonprofits banding together to share donors. Sounds a bit unrealistic, perhaps? Well, let's listen to Ariel share her experiences and tell us what to do and what to avoid if we team up with partners to fundraise. Welcome, everyone, to Nonprofit Problem Solver. We are back from a break, and I'm really excited to uh, have episode 21. And as my guest, I have Ariel Glassman. And uh, Ariel, welcome. You are calling us from, you're calling in from Seattle, I understand. Um, Okay, so tell us a little bit about yourself and where people can find you online so they can look you up while they're listening. Yeah, you bet. Um, there's a couple of places you can find me online. First is arielglassman.com, not to be like truly obvious about it. Um, but you can also find me at virtualgala.co. I'm the managing director of the Virtual Gala Collaborative, which is all about helping nonprofits produce really amazing virtual events. And the rest of my fundraising practice or consulting practice is focused on um, campaigns, fundraising technology, fundraising strategy, etc. So that's the stuff I love to play in. Um, those are my passion spaces and how I've chosen to spend my time as an independent practitioner and consultant out in the field of fundraising. Right. And which social media accounts are you happy for people to ping you on if they, uh, they're listening? Honestly, LinkedIn is the best. Um, okay. Yeah. And, you know, you can find me on Instagram, but I don't really post anything particularly nonprofit-y on Instagram. You see a lot of pictures of my two-year-old golden doodle. She's really cute. Ah, right. Okay. So you mentioned virtual events. I know we spoke uh, when we were coming up with our, our topic for today. We had um, lots to choose from. Um, uh, and maybe we'll come back another time and talk about virtual events because I know that's one of your uh, passions. But today we are going to uh, talk about collaborative fundraising. Now, we know in nonprofits that we're not meant to be competitive and that we collaborate and that we share uh, although we can feel sometimes that we are competing for donors or that we are competing, obviously, for, for you know, grants are set up in a competitive way. Um, but collaborative fundraising hmm, seems like it could just be a recipe for disaster in some respects. So 
uh, walk me through what it is and why people should be thinking about it more. Uh, I think it's probably going to be obvious why we haven't been doing it for a while, but (laughs) go ahead and tell me what collaborative fundraising really is. Yeah. So, you know, in my mind, collaborative fundraising is, it's sort of the, um, you know, there's lots of ways that nonprofits partner out in the world and they generally tiptoe right up to this line and never really cross it. So lots of organizations collaborate on program implementation, program design, you know, how they collaborate in regards to impact. But when it comes to fundraising, everybody goes, oh, whoa, whoa, my donors are my donors, you know, and it's understandable. You know, we all come from originally in this sector, a scarcity mindset. So it's totally understandable why people might be skeptical of this or might kind of go, ooh, that's not for me. But in my mind, it's when you actually collaborate on fundraising together, raising money for whoever's participating in that kind of collective effort together with a shared purpose a shared statement of impact, you know, and a shared understanding of actually why you're all doing it together and why that's better than doing it alone. Right. So there's two things there. Uh, one is the structure, like how, you know, how you do it, like what does actually mean? Like, what are you collaborating about? The other thing, um, so we'll do that one first, but what I want to come back to, so remind me if I forget, is uh, how you would select your partners when you come to collaborate. So first, tell me what it means, you know, how you would structure a collaborative fundraising uh, event or, or campaign? Yeah. For one thing, I would recommend that probably a campaign that is more than one day or sort of more than a virtual event where the energy is really focused on one day only is probably the better way to go for this. Because I think debuting a sort of new idea or new brand for a certain campaign to your audience could take a little longer to tease out. Um, not that you shouldn't be marketing your virtual events well ahead of time, because you should. Um, but, you know, it's interesting. So the primary example in my work of collaborative fundraising um, was this effort called the Stay in the Game Relief Fund. Um, I've long time worked for Feminist Frequency, which is in the uh, media critique and pop culture equity space. Um, and they also run a hotline for people in the games industry who are suffering or need support or who have challenging work environments, being harassed, things like that. And that's a new program. So uh, when we were working together, um, the executive director actually is the one who had the seed of this idea. And so she actually identified video game nonprofits also in that sector who essentially did something along the same continuum of what they did, whether access um, or support or, um, you know, just very specific niches, uh, but all related to that same community. So I think that was the first lesson is we were looking at people who had relationships generally with at least a slice of the same community we did, but also being very strategic to make sure that there was a Venn diagram there and that they had an audience that we did not have. And I think it's important for everybody to have a win if you're going to participate in something like this and not have it be you know, you bringing your donors to the table, but other organizations not necessarily having having anything to offer to you in terms of here's a slice of the audience you don't have a relationship with yet. So, so let me interject there. The, it seems like you answered the one question uh, yeah. about how you sort of select your partners. So you've, so, so two things that you uh, mentioned that I want to pull out. One is that you've got some relevance to each other. It might be working in adjacent fields or uh, have some relationship. So you could, in other words, be partners already. You know, you're not going to be completely complete strange. You might be, but you could you could reasonably be expected to be familiar with this other organization or the people in that organization. And secondly, 
you probably have some overlap in not just the people you serve, but you probably your donors and your supporters and your volunteers, so that there is um, not not a not a, an overlap that looks like a circle, <laughs> but a Venn diagram that suggests. Yeah, we've got some people in common, but we're also going to be bringing our own people to this common table. Exactly. Um, and I think your point about, uh, you know, how we select and that these may already be organizations we're partnering with is very true. And I think um, relationships between organizational leaders really play into this. Um, you know, one example. Because <laughs> that was one of the minefields I was going <laughs> to come back to, you know. It was. So is- <laughs> it truly was. Um, you know, the very first partner that we brought in. Um, was actually the nonprofit that Feminist Frequency was collaborating with to create this games hotline. Um, so they were brought in right away because, you know, we were actually doing the programmatic partnership shared impact effort with them. Um, and that extended to, you know, basically based on those two people, um, a total of eight executive directors were approached for this and only four said yes, including the original organization, Feminist Frequency. Um, which was interesting. So um, later I so was. What were the, what were the um, reasons for people saying no? Was it, um, and what, sorry, I'm going to ask you uh, both. What was the, uh, what was the stated reason? And what did you think the real reason was? You know, I'm not entirely sure they were super different. Like, I don't know that there's something lurking behind the no, other than I think it's very understandable that if you're not, um, Playing a somewhat nuanced fundraising game and at a certain level already, I would understand why the way you perceive fundraising is not a thing that you share or that it might endanger your organization. And if you're an ED and you perceive something could endanger your organization, you're going to pull back, right? Right. So there was a certain group of people who we could get there with and a certain group that we couldn't. And I think one thing I realized is that all the organizations who said no, um, they actually didn't have great individual giving programs. And I don't know whether or not they saw that as a deficit and they couldn't bring much to the table, which I don't think was true, um, or whether they didn't understand the value of it because they're not necessarily engaged in that kind of work where they understand the big leaps you can take with individual giving fairly quickly uh, if you play your cards right. Um, There is also one other thing to mention here, um, which could spur a whole different topic around leadership, but the executive director of the organizations that said, yes, we're all women, and the executive directors of the organizations that said, no, we're all men. So I observed a pattern mm. there. I don't know why. I don't want to apply judgment to it. This is a small data set, but I, I understand what you're saying. I think there's <laughs> a, you know, an approach towards your collaborative leadership style or how collaborative you are to begin with, um, and maybe even socialization like that. Mm-hmm. Well, the impact- there is an interesting thing. Uh, I mean, I think the, the obvious, the obvious uh, risk for um, people collaborating in this regard is, you know, whose donors are going to be and, and that sort of stuff. Um, so I can see some, some sort of territorial um, protection, um, but, but really the, the, there's something deeper in just collaborating on an event or a project uh, when, when things that seem to be at stake, like fundraising, and that requires a lot of trust. It's, not, it's, it's one thing to throw your logo on a report that's mm-hmm. relatively low stakes, you know, everyone sort of being there as part of the party. But when it comes to something higher stakes, uh, people are, you said, are going to be a bit more protective. So yeah. trust, is, trust is an important, uh, important feature of those relationships. Totally. I, the original two organizations that really pushed from this, you know, they had inherent trust in each other, but I can understand why 
everybody who was the next layer out or the next layer out in terms of degrees of connection back to the two of them um, might have been more hesitant because they didn't have that same kind of like, we've been partnering with you. We trust you. We know what you're about. Um, and that, again, is understandable. You know, this is this is a big um, set of concerns to push through for an ED. So I don't necessarily, you know, blame anybody who said no for not being visionary or whatnot. Every every organization's different. So. And and was it difficult to uh, arrive at, as you said, a common objective, or was that inherent in the initial ask? How how did that come about, where people could decide, yes, this is this is this is uh, a shared vision of what we're trying to achieve here. Yeah, I mean, this campaign was prompted by COVID and the immediate impact and drop off in the video games industry, or sort of the immediate instability. Later, video game companies crept up back to being more stable because everybody's staying at home and why not play video games? But initially, there was tremendous concern in the industry and the nonprofits, I think, were, were very, and I think rightly, concerned that this kind of immediate crash in potential revenue might put them under um, and that there was something, um, something in the emergency nature of it that made it easier to come together and go, all right, we're all going to put our cards on the table and figure out what this is. But um, I'm gathering from from your excitement and your passion around this and it is presumably shared with at least some of those four. And uh, they thought, well, we should have been doing this all along. There was definitely a sentiment at the end of the campaign in general that was like, there's, we hope there's an opportunity to try this again. And actually our Slack channel for the people leading the organizations is still open and we talk all the time. So it definitely created more bonds than were there before, even when there were already connections and bonds uh, in that. Right. Okay. So we've done some of the intangible stuff. It's it's the the sort of overlap. We're sort of in the same space. We we like each other enough to get on and spend enough time together to plan this and execute it. We trust each other enough to share our our um, our donor databases, or at least our supporters, or or maybe we're going to agree some common text that we all push out to our channels separately. We have a way of doing that. What are the practicality? I mean, what does this really look like on the ground for someone who's thinking about this and thinking, gosh, collaboration normally means more work, even though I'd like it to be less work and shared responsibility, but but it can often mean more because the additional effort to have meetings and agreements and, and so on. So, tell, or talk us through what that what that looks and feels like on the ground. Yeah. Well, I think the first piece of putting together a strategy for this, once you have the partners in place, is what does each organization bring to the table? What is their strength? You know, two of these organizations had some mojo with individual donors, one of them much more so than the other, and two really didn't have individual donor work to a huge degree, but had many more relationships with corporations and in some cases, even sort of private funders, um, which didn't end up collaborating, but we had a sort of spread of different kinds of relationships that we could access and my goal was, what are these relationships? What access do we have? What relationships do we have? How do we generate and use those together? And so that was my first sort of practical step is, what is everybody bringing to the table? Um, the next piece was getting everybody to agree on what we were going to do with the money and also sort of a, a data sharing MOU, right? There's donor privacy concerns around this. So we had to all come together yeah. to say, we are raising unrestricted funds to keep our organizations sustained through COVID. 
and then everybody was clear on that messaging. And then we were all clear on, okay, the donors and sponsors that walk in the door for this, who gets what, what do we do with them? How do we do that fairly and equitably? And ultimately, we decided that funding would be split completely evenly four ways um, and that everybody would have access to the donor data um, and be able to put them in their communication stream, et cetera, as well as corporate relationships that were brought to the table. So we basically did it just as split down the middle evenly as we could. But you have to, you have to put that in place in writing. You have to make sure you have a moment where you're in a Zoom room with the other leaders and you look them all in the eye and you say, we all understand what the implications of this are. We all understand what we get to do after. We all understand why we're here. And if you don't get that, it's kind of hard to move forward, I think, on the, on the same page. Right. So this is, this is like four friends going for a meal and splitting the check evenly, no matter what they order, uh, you know, and people bring different appetites and, you know, and that, that sort of thing. But they're just they're going to split the check evenly. Yeah. Even if it looks yeah. like one, one friend has more money than the other and the other one's really good at flirting for the, at, with the waiter for a discount, you know, um, that kind of thing. Again, not everybody coming to the table with the same thing, but agreeing to walk away with, with the, an equal amount of everything. Okay, here's something I want to pull up. The, when we talk about individual donors and you're sort of trying to uh, increase perhaps some, some smaller uh, those who give small donations to larger donations and, and move them to recurring donations and so on. We always talk about relationships and having uh, that personal attachment to the mission and the impact. Now, you've got four different organizations uh, that are sort of, sh- in some senses, blending those relationships. And some of them might be quite intimate in the sense that a particular major donors very passionate about the the mission of the one organization and sort of less interested perhaps in the other three. So that's, that's one element is like how you manage the relationships. And then there's the practical side of that is, are you now telling me that this person's gift and their data and you know, their eventually their inbox and, and other things are going to be shared with, with three other organizations. And how, how does that, again, the, the practicalities of letting your donors know that that's what's going to happen and, and that sort of thing. Um, great question. It does also start with identifying one nonprofit that is essentially going to be the one that takes in the funds and redistributes. In that case, it was Feminist Frequency, um, who sort of had the idea for it to begin with. So that's one thing. Oh, okay, so it's almost like a fiscal sponsor relationship. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so we, you know, when donors got tax receipts, they were getting them from Feminist Frequency. But the language we developed was all about the why are we here? It's... Um, You know, I think one thing we did really well was to communicate across the whole campaign, which was two and a half weeks long, what each of these organizations did. And it came down to two, you know, main um, goals that these organizations, when you zoom out 30,000 feet, these are what they're here to do. And one was support the mental and emotional health of the gaming community at a time when everyone is vulnerable and elevating the voices Mm -hmm. of marginalized people who want to tell stories and bring their experiences to life through games. So really, those were the two kind of, why do I care about this uh, aspects that came together for this? And we did a great job of highlighting each one of those organizations along the way so that donors would have a chance to see that they might not have heard of that organization, but actually it really is aligned with their values and they do care about that. You know, and in many cases, the notion of elevating marginalized people and then creating emotional support, that's a two-way street with a lot of shared audience. Right, right. Right. So interestingly, so I mentioned this idea of um, it's sort of a modeled after the the fiscal sponsorship notion 
where um, money money is distributed sort of behind the scenes and there's a you know this intermediary if you will um, so I can understand why that that would that would work and that can be laid out explicitly but it suggests also that um, you would not want to brand the campaign um, as because it might dilute then your ability to feature the individual members particularly if it's, I mean, it's two and a half weeks um, but you can imagine a tendency for people to come together and say, uh, rather that, you know, some of us are no better known than others and some of us are larger than others. We'll all sit behind this common shared brand mm-hmm. and we'll brand the campaign and, and people will give to that. And that sort of stretches across all our missions. But I'm, I'm, and I'm putting words in your mouth to a certain extent, but I'm, ge- but I'm getting the sense that that would not be your recommendation. No, that's exactly what we did. That's why oh, you I, did do a brand. We did. Absolutely. Oh, so oh, okay. the of the F- no, it's okay. And I think there's valid um, choices on either side of that choice, but you know, these are also a bunch of very media savvy, tech savvy organizations with great branding. So they, I think okay. they understood mm-hmm. the value. So we came together and I, I still have the spreadsheet from this. We brainstormed a bunch of names that could reflect why we were here, right? S- sustaining ourselves through COVID relief in the gaming industry. And what we came up with was stay in the game relief fund which is not only sort of indicating that it's in the gaming industry, but that there's, when you do that, it's helping us stay in the game. And that became a rhetorical device that we used in out the communications. And we had great brand design. Gotcha. We made okay. sure that it was super clear that these four organizations were coming together under this brand. Yeah. Right. Uh, but, th- but was it also clear that they were um, in a sense, raising money for, for their own sustainability, as opposed to you know, like the beneficiaries were the organizations, you know, in yeah. terms of unrestricted funds, rather than going all to programming, you know, which will be different in each of these cases. Correct. You know, we had the literal language on our campaign page was, you know, when you're helping us, your gift will help our organizations stay in the game for the long haul by sustaining staff, core programs and operations. It was a very explicit case for unrestricted general operations support that didn't even touch explaining why that was, you know, necessary and good for the organizations. We just bowled right by trying to explain that because that's not something you can usually change somebody's opinions on if they think that overhead shouldn't be paid for with their gifts. Like we just sort of went around that. Gotcha. Right. Okay. So, so it all went, it all went hundred percent as expected. All your goals were met. Everything was wonderful. It's, you know, and, and this is now a model that you're going to replicate over and over and over again, never to uh, think, turn your, never to look back again and do something different because it's, it's that perfect, right? Oh, no, no, no. I think it could be a really <laughs> um, intriguing part of an annual campaign plan, right? This is something that I would recommend each nonprofit consider, but honestly, it's not going to be right for every organization. It's not going to be right for every, you know, kind of subsector of the nonprofit sector, um, and I think that's one of the reasons I'm excited to have this call because without kind of seeing examples of it, I think everybody would kind of back away. Right. But, and yeah. so that's, that's a, that's a great, that's a, that was a great thing. So let's, let's, so, so we're adding something to our annual development menu, if you will. Um, we um, know this is sort of came out of COVID, but it's not restricted to COVID. It's a way of joining forces uh, for a particular, um, uh, for a particular purpose. Now, when uh, an organization or an ED or director of development wants to consider this sort of collaboration, um, or if I called you and said, um, Ariel, walk me through the way I should be thinking about this. By the way, 
my board doesn't know anything about this yet, or my ED doesn't, you know, no one knows anything about this, and I'm going to have to present this idea. But mm-hmm. I heard this intriguing podcast about collaborative fundraising. How do I think about it? How do I understand whether this is for me? And by the way, I want to, I want a fast answer. I want to fail fast here and, <laughs> and either rule it out or rule it in. And how would, I, how would you advise someone to go about thinking about it? I mean, honestly, I would just very transparently present examples of how this has succeeded out in the world and what the risks are. Because I think not being transparent on those things to a board when there is risk involved in something like this um, would end badly in the long run. So I am always a fan of us being very direct and very transparent and trying to make the case. Um, And I think I wouldn't go to them and say, hey, can I think about this and maybe bring it back to you? I would spend a minute really fleshing it out with some ideas and say, this is how I think it could work, not why I think it would work, right? Yeah, yeah. No, I'm think- what I'm thinking of is before they get to that point mm-hmm. and they're just trying to start thinking of their development plan and what options they've got for the year, how should they consider the, and, and pr- basically process it as an option? Like, well, is this, you know, should I be, what should I do first? Think of a model and uh, you know, do some of the sort of the preliminary planning and then go pitch it to my colleagues and see what it's what, you know, whether it's going to fly or, or, you know, how do how should I process if I were an ED or director of development? Well, I think like all good fundraising, it all comes from starting with why not to go all Simon Sinek on you. Um, but I'm about to, uh, I think looking around and going, why would I want to partner with these organizations? What are we all what's our shared? Why? And I think that will lead you to who are the right organizations? That will lead you to what is the right use of funds that we're going to communicate out into the world, um, et cetera. So I like to start there and thinking about picking partners that way. Also, there is a little bit of a, hey, what size am I? Am I big? You know, can I, is this me being generous to other smaller nonprofits in my, you know, my community? Am I a small organization who really wants to partner with bigger nonprofits and sort of be able to ride the wave that they bring forward? Um, I don't want to discourage really strategic thinking like that because, again, each of us in this campaign walked away with equal funds, but we got very different uh, qualitative improvements in our fundraising for each organization based on where we were all coming from before. Uh, and I can give you some examples of that with Feminist Frequency for sure. Yeah, yeah. So I want to come back to that in a second um, because that's a, obviously you know what you've learned since then and what is, what's been the... Um, experience of the individual organizations in terms of their development uh, and and the way they're thinking about it now. So definitely want to come back to that in a second. But what it sounded to me like the first question that anybody should ask themselves is, do I really have a collaboration in place already? In other words, do I have colleagues in a small number, at least at least three or four other organizations that I could naturally team up with that wouldn't seem artificial, that we would be able to come to some sort of agreement. Uh, because in other words, you probably already know them, already have some semblance of, of trust um, and uh, feel like you could pull something like this together under, as you said, a brand that everyone can sign up to without too much battling, you know? Yeah, definitely. I mean, again, we started with going to our actual program collaboration partner and saying, what do you think? Right. And every person brought to the table was sort of one or two degrees of relationships out from that core. Um, The other thing I think that could work is for organizations who aren't necessarily partnering, but that kind of do the same thing. For example, I could see this working for, you know, four different food banks in a large city who might have Mm -hmm. really incredible marketing and reach power together um, and 
generally knowing that the campaign would really be a, a rising tide that floated the boats of the concept of supporting food banks in this time and not disadvantaging any of them. Like that is, I would love to do that campaign. So I think there's sort of a look around and who is the same or very similar as well as who do I know and who do I trust? Yeah. And it's an interesting um, point there because uh, sometimes when to, 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 to the lay person who's not involved with those organizations, it's unclear how they're different. Uh, whether whether their their missions to you know particularly if the missions are are written in in a way which doesn't specify their particular niche, uh, then then it may it may make it may be easier for them to join forces in 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 particular instance you know as as you said as a um, adjunct to their uh, individual fundraising. Yes, I think that's definitely the case. Okay, so let's let's um, uh, circle back to these. Four organizations. They've gone through this. Um, what what we would, uh, of course, refer to as a as a successful um, two and a half week campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, what were their qualitative outcomes? How did how did they feel about it afterwards? What worked? What would you might might do differently? Uh, and how were their experiences different? That's a great question. And again, it really differs based on the strengths they were bringing in. I can speak most fluidly about feminist frequency because I've been around to experience it with them. I mean, the first thing was that, you know, our program that was the center of this, the Games and Online Harassment Hotline, was just in the early stages of launching. And this was a huge awareness boost for that the fact that this even existed. So number one, we got some really qualitative, great PR out of this. Number two, um, feminist Frequency was really strong on individual giving. The great monthly giving program brought a lot of um, individual donor contacts to the table for this campaign. But we also walked away with corporate relationships we did not have with video game companies that, you know, the other mental health partner had access to, but that we did not. And that opened the door for those conversations for us. We've now secured gifts again from some of those people, even including like matching gifts for our next campaign that was just Feminist Frequency. Um, and coming wow. around, but then, but but yeah. to your point, sorry, I can I was no, trying okay. to just like squeezing because you're just pulling these little nuggets. I want to well, is that <laughs> the 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 learning point there is is if you go into this collaborative sort of relationship, you really need to be prepared to act on these opportunities. Yeah. Rather than yes. say, oh, I wonder what's going to happen. Who are we going to see? Oh, isn't that interesting? Let's see what we get. Let's see who's around, and then we'll decide what to do but basically if you're if you're clever about it the one comes and says we've got individual donors but we're what we're light on corporate if you bring corporate okay so we now need to 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 tune our radar to what does it mean oh by the way can you tell us and by the way you know these people and by the way you already have the relationships and so on like help guide us so basically like it's a warm intro but it's not just a warm intro to the individual it's a warm intro to that sort of form of fundraising where you've where you've you know you're a bit weak so so these partners can help you um with you know with so you're so you're basically primed to act on these new corporate relationships at the at the right time yeah and i think that that kind of having a formal association with each other really opened the doors to um you know say corporate relationships with feminist frequency in a way that had we not been attached to the other mental health organization programmatically might might not have shaken out that way, um, for sure. And I think it's definitely definitely worth being strategic. And in fact, these campaigns are a lot of work. If you're not going to be strategic about it, 
if you kind of don't know what your secret goal is in terms of your own audience development or, you know, acquisition goals when you walk into this, you know, make sure you have that well in hand first. And I would say to answer an earlier question you you had about how this might fit in um, and make a case for it. One thing we discovered was that for all the organizations, no matter what you walked in with for individual donors, um, this was an acquisition monster for individual donors. You know, Feminist Frequency came in with the strongest group, the highest numbers, the most money we raised from individuals. But the whole thing generated the kind of awareness that brought entirely new donors that weren't, you know, quote, owned by anyone already to the table. And we benefited just from that just as much as the other organizations. Well, that was my, that was, that was going to be my, my, one of my questions was, you've got these four organizations with some overlap. So you have this increasingly complicated Venn diagram (laughs) of these, these, these four, these four overlapping uh, donor databases. Um, But how did you expand them? Did you just swap, swap names and, and um, because in that sense, you know, the, 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 the big donor or the, the, the handful of big donors for one organization then gets, just gets diluted. And you have to ask, is it more than compensated by me getting uh, new donations from my, from my uh, partner organizations? But what you're telling me, um, and if you can quantify it even better, you know, yeah. how much did the, 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 the sort of pool of, of, of donors grow, both, both individual mm-hmm. and corporate? a great question. And as the person who kind of oversees what goes into the database for feminist frequency, you know, when I did that import to Little Green Light, there were of like about 550 total donors to that campaign. Over 400 of them were new to us, not in our donor base, etc. Now, I do want to clarify that the information sharing agreement was for the outcome of this campaign, the people who gave. We did not share internal email lists, mailing lists, anything like that. Each organization, you know, my job was to help them each figure out their best strategy for leveraging what they had and that whoever was brought to the table as a result of that to the mutual campaign was sort of fair game for everybody communicating with them later on. I just want to clarify that point. Oh, okay. So the people who were shared with the four organizations were the ones who were new to all four. Well, everyone who gave was shared. It's like um, we oh, each did our own audience development work and, you know, Feminist Frequency didn't have access to IGDA Foundation's email list, but IGDA, IGDA Foundation was working their email list. And a bunch of those people did give to the campaign and now Feminist Frequency. They are on our newsletter. They are becoming right. 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 And were, were you, did I understand you correctly that you were, that the four organizations were able to pull in new donors that none of the four organizations had previously? Correct. Yeah. Lots. <laughs> Lots. Right. Okay. Um, because that, yeah, as you said, acquisition monster, that that's important too, is that sort of, there's a net, uh, gain for everyone, which, um, again, more than compensates for any perceived, uh, dilution of, of someone's gift. Yeah. And if you're trying to make the case to a higher up about why you should do this and your development plan says, boy, we need new acquisition sources. This might be a great way to go fill that need. But if you are an organization that does really well with donor acquisition and your goals are actually elsewhere, you know, this might not actually be the best strategic move for you. Um, it can certainly help retain and cultivate some of your donors. But I found that it was really good for generating new versus keeping uh, current donors um, cultivated in the same way they do for being a relationship to each organization normally. Yeah, I mean, I could imagine um, being cynical uh, that you know, if you've got a really good relationship with uh, with a hefty donor who gives several different times a year, you might say this isn't the one you want to give your biggest gift to, <laughs> because we only get a quarter of it, 
um, or you know, we only got to share. <laughs> save your save your bigger <laughs> gift for later in the year. <laughs> you know, um, honestly, we we definitely know. have internal conversations about that. You know, our organization does have people who make significant four and five figure gifts, not at the six figure individual gift level um, yet. But we definitely were strategic about how we approach those people. So, for example, the ED had some forward conversations with some of those donors beforehand and said, we're coming up with this. You know, if this is of interest to you, you know, we want you to know that, you know, if this is a place where you want to put your support and energy, we really believe in these other organizations and we get it. And we're going to present that opportunity to you and we wanted to talk to you about it ahead of time. And pretty much every donor we did that with not only made some kind of gift to the campaign, not their biggest gift ever, or maybe not their what they normally give to Feminist Frequency annually, they also did then not give. They did not not give to the end of year campaign where many of them actually typically make their 1000 or 5000 or $2,500. Right. So we were just transparent about it. And you know we can't stop someone if they're more compelled by this than our other stuff. And sure. I didn't want to suppress the fact that we were doing this um, with those big donors. I wanted them to know. And I think it paid off. Right. Yeah, no, I think I, I I get what you're saying and being absolutely transparent about it. But there's again, scarcity mindset will yep. may lead people to think that this type of collaborative uh, effort might cannibalize their annual giving program or uh, you know some other element where 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 they might they might do themselves out of a large check. Uh, yeah. And you know it's yeah. it's I know it's the wrong way to be thinking about fundraising, but sometimes it, particularly you know when when we're when people are are under pressure in in situations like we've had over the last twelve months. Yeah, well, it's a completely understandable approach. You know, this is something that normally nonprofits would look around and go, "Wow, you're close to what I do, and you go for the same audience. I compete with you." And it's definitely a mindset shift to get over that, you know, understanding. Um, and one thing I want to say is that part of our approach to why we were comfortable having explicit conversations with major donors and inviting them into this and not necessarily, quote, saving them for our year-end campaign is that actually those major donors are not the greatest source, either by dollar or by volume, of our funding. We have a very strong monthly giving program, a great kind of grassroots individual giving program, and most of our strength comes from there. So I was willing to push the buck a little bit or push the envelope a little bit with this other group because we already weren't super reliant on them. In fact, I wondered if we might see more engagement when they saw us taking a leadership role in this kind of community sector-wide effort. And I think that was the case. So wow. okay. we had that asset, but not everybody does. And that's why I was comfortable taking a risk. Yeah, good. So just to clarify, you ran, you said two and a half week campaign. Yep. And so what was the thinking in designing that? Did you have much conversation about um, have that, or did did you approach the other organizations with this sort of uh, designed already and said, "Hey, do you want to come on board?" Um, we approached them for the concept and said, "Do we want to do this first? Is everybody on board? Do we feel like we have a strong case to make, you know, together as these four organizations?" And after that, you know, the other organizations looked around and said, "Well, we don't really know how to do this." And one of the reasons that I think the executive director of Feminist Frequency, Anita, felt comfortable was because she had me on her team. You know, I've long time been her sort of contract development um, expert and kind of helping them grow. And she knew that I had the chops to pull this off. And so we then went and that was actually part of the pitch. You know, when we were talking about whether we should do this, bringing people in, there was, if you don't know how to do this, that's okay, because we have a professional who does. And I think even if, you know, an organization had a really strong development director who was good at individual giving, you could pull that off. But we use it as a, it's okay, it's safe to do this, and then develop the plan cohesively together with the people who said yes. And I basically brought in kind of 
sit at the center of all their assets and missions and figure out the plan that would work. So would you recommend that people do this sort of short, intensive type of campaign or would it apply to a virtual event or would it, or, or some other, how, what's the, what's the anchor, if you will, to the campaign? Um, and, or is it, is it flexible for any of those different models? What's your recommendation there? Having done a ton of virtual events and knowing the kind of energy that goes into painting a very clear picture of the impact of that one organization in very specific ways, I don't know that I'd recommend doing um, a shared virtual event with maybe more than one other really obvious partner that you have program collaboration with. I think it's a lot easier when you have advanced planning for something that is a little bit more of a, it has a little bit more um, the giving period is a little more stretched out and you have more time to make the case, um, et cetera. So I, I think this probably lives mostly in, we're going to do a campaign together. Um, I wouldn't rule out virtual events, but I think it would be harder um, for some pretty arcane reasons that are floating in my head right now. So. But in a sense, I mean, it's not obviously a virtual event, but it is a virtual campaign in the sense Definitely. that it's entirely yeah. digital or snail mail, you know, on paper, whatever it's, or phone calls. It's not, uh, it, it's not anchored to uh, any sort uh, of, of event of any kind or, well, or a I program. Wouldn't say, I wouldn't say that necessarily because one of the way, the day we capped off and we did this on purpose, the last day of the campaign was also the 11th anniversary of the founding of Feminist Frequency. So we did a massive eight hour online game and, you know, kind of social community live stream event that night. Okay. However, we didn't come up with that idea until like a week into the campaign. Um, so it wasn't oh, necessarily there originally, but actually that moment and how successful it was put us on a path where we're now doing more of those live stream fundraisers and asking more charity streamers with lots of audiences to do that for us. And it is working as a fundraising strategy we simply had no experience with before this moment. Right. Okay. So um, to, let's see if we can summarize all this in the last, uh, in the last uh, minute or so. Um, so um, basically you would consider collaborative fundraising where you more or less already have a collaboration. You have some natural partners. You may or may not have worked with them, but you believe that you can present a, a common umbrella sort of message in a, in a short space of time, um, pool your, um, your, your donors, um, not merging databases or anything, but, but pooling your messaging, um, having some very clear MOUs, a clear agreement about how you're going to uh, distribute the funds using ideally one organization as a sort of uh, channel or sort of fiscal sponsor model to bring in all the money and issue all the receipts and the tax uh, statements uh, and then dole out the money uh, is, is probably the simplest way of, of doing that. Um, and uh, all those who give uh, will, will be shared and um, you do it that basically that way. Is that, have I have covered just about everything? Yeah, that was uh, a very excellent summary, I think. Right. Okay. Well, I'll try and take uh, good mental notes as we go. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, that's, that's been fantastic, Ariel. Can you remind everyone where to, uh, to find you online? Uh, I'm sure people have questions, um, uh, you know, listening to the podcast or, or watching uh, bits of this video. So where would they reach out to you and find out more? Yeah. I mean, again, my website is arielglassman.com and you can reach me at ariel at arielglassman.com or through my web form. Um, and you can also find me at virtualgala.co if you're interested in talking about big virtual events. 
Um, definitely find me on LinkedIn. I love creating relationships on LinkedIn uh, and would welcome anybody listening to add me and, you know, chat about whatever's interesting to you. Also, you can find me on Clubhouse, which is new. And I just want to root for that because that's actually where I met you, Kev, is, is a random yeah, sort of I know. We're having fun with that, aren't we? Them together, um, which is this new audio only app. And you can certainly find me on there. And I am doing a weekly show Mondays at 6 p.m. Pacific. That's Real Talk Fundraising, is what it's called. Yeah, excellent. Okay, well, thank you for um, making episode twenty-one what it, what it, what it's been. Um, I'll be back. Episode twenty-two next week is on Friday. It airs live on uh, February fifth. I'll be with Allison McIntosh, who's a life coach. We'll be talking about um, our t- time management and why do we feel like we're always running out of time. So uh, look out for um, ways of signing up for that. Or if you're listening to this later on as a podcast, uh, it's probably going to um, line up in your queue next <laughs> anyway. <laughs> um, uh, you can always reach me at uh, kevkayat.com. You can find me uh, just uh, on Twitter, on LinkedIn, on Facebook, and uh, at Instagram. And of course, I'm also now on Clubhouse, so I can listen and join Ariel in her room. Uh, But thanks, everybody. We will see you hopefully next time on Nonprofit Problem Solver. Thanks very much. Thanks for joining us on the Nonprofit Problem Solver podcast. Thanks to Ariel Glassman for being my guest. And if you want to get in touch with Ariel, you can find her online at arielglassman.com. This episode was produced by Glenn Munoz at PodPro Audio. You can join future conversations live by visiting nonprofitproblemsolver.com. Connect with Kev on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. For more information, visit kevkayat.com. Because good causes deserve better results.